Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Well, everybody, I am glad that you are all here. Um, tonight, we're going to continue our discussion on early uh, heroes, uh, heroes of the early church, um, uh, and a great class that Tim Harrison's been teaching. Last week, we studied Irenaeus, uh, um, wait, Athanasius, excuse me, Athanasius. I should know that, Tim, because you know <laughs> me is Athanasius. Uh, last week, we looked at Athanasius. Uh, this week, we're going to be continuing our study. Uh, I'm excited to hear what Tim has to say. So, Tim, take it away. All right. Well, it's great to be back. Again, I love that so many people are here. Uh, and I love it because, uh, you know, when you, when you know history is being presented, you know whoever shows up really, really wants to be there. And, uh, and that's always exciting coming from a history geek like me. Um, I did, Chris, if you want to put up that first slide, just so I can sort of keep track of where I'm at, because uh, there was some housekeeping that I wanted to do. Uh, first of all, we are going to be talking about Maximus the Confessor, but uh, a gentleman brought up a really good point last week, and I addressed it a little bit, but I just wanted to take a little bit more, and that was talking about how pervasive was allegorical interpretation of the Holy Scripture. And one of the things I said was it sort of depended on where you came from because it was more allegorically interpreted in the West. And basically what I mean by that is everything west of the Adriatic Sea. And in the East, it was sort of translated more literal. However, whenever you have things like the church replacing Israel, that is a sign that allegorical interpretation has taken place. And you kind of do find that empire wide, although uh, not all of that was because of a determination to erase the Jews from history. One thing we have to remember is that a lot of the early church were made up of Jews and they saw their Christianity as just a continuation of their Jewishness. They didn't even necessarily view it as a new religion. They just viewed it as, as Judaism evolved. The, the Christianity was an extra step. They were a step above. So they oftentimes still identified as being Jewish and believed that the church was a continuation of Israel and the Jewish people. Again, largely because that early church was made up of Jewish people themselves. Now, as time went on, and the church had more Gentiles, that's when we see more of the uh, allegorical interpretations come into place. We see the church being more of a replacement for Israel rather than a continuation of faithful Israel. Um, but I just thought that, that the, the questioner brought up a good point, and I didn't maybe go through it as well as I should have, so I wanted to address that here. Secondly, uh, 
I completely forgot to say the obvious that uh, when Athanasius was finished his speaking and they came up with a document for everybody to sign, that document was none other than the Nicene Creed. So uh, it's a it's a brilliant. It's kind of like almost like our Declaration of Independence, if you will, in a way. It's it's a wonderful uh, encapsulation of scriptural truth, uh, and basically the idea of the creed was to make explicit that which was implicit in the Holy Scriptures. It wasn't to uh, exhaustively define the mysteries of the faith, but at least to set the parameters of the faith. So it's it's a really great creed. Uh, if you've never read it, I would I would encourage you to do so. And thirdly, and this was just something I thought about, and I didn't even get a chance to get on the slide, but Steve asked a great question. Steve Herzog asked a great question. Why study church history? And, you know, I thought about that a little bit more, and I realized that one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to study it, not only to see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but also so that we, as modern-day believers, can claim that. Uh, far too often, I think we have the idea that uh, Constantine came along and basically ruined it for everybody. And basically, at that point, everything became Catholic and the, the church basically was lost at that point. Sometimes we push that point back even further and say, well, basically, as soon as the Apostle John died, the entire church fell into her heresy and was lost. But, you know, we have to remember that, that Jesus Christ said that he was going to preserve his church. And a lot of our differences aren't so cut and dry. And a lot of the differences that we see today took quite a long time to come about. Um, uh, so as a result, I think it's important for us to, to study church history and realize that our church history doesn't just end with the Apostle John and then all of a sudden restart again with Martin Luther tacking up the 99 Theses. We can claim a lot of church history. And I think that that's important so that we can understand where we came from and what our brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord fought for. So with that, uh, let's go to our first, uh, our, our next slide, I should say, Christopher, and let's see if we can keep me on track here. Sorry. I don't know what happened to it. Just bear with me for one up oh, resume. No problem. So our historical setting, let's, uh, oh, you know what, Chris, this is the, uh, oh, yeah, this is right, yeah. Uh, it says Constantine 325 AD. That was my fault. It is not Constantine's uh, empire. This is the empire of Heraclius. So forgive the unprofessionality there. But if any of you remember the map of the Roman Empire from last week, it shrunk a little bit by this time. Uh, the Roman Empire was ruling a little bit less worlds, although in spite of the shrinking, Christianity was actually spreading so that a good deal of that which is pictured in white had already been touched by Christian evangelists around the world. So let's go ahead and leave that slide behind. Let's talk about some issues of the day. Uh, let's set the stage. And one of the things that I feel like is, is important to do is that um, uh, is to set the stage and realize that at this time there were certain things going on. Uh, East and West were growing further apart. There were more and more cultural differences, even in the Roman Empire itself. Um, just little things at first that, that grew into bigger things. Um, for instance, uh, in the West, you were in the far West, like in, in Rome and Italy, you were already starting to get some odd mandates, like uh, certain priests were 
believing that they couldn't be married anymore, whereas that was not an issue in the East. Um, so you had little things like that. Uh, and also were experiencing the first uprisings of Islam in the Middle East, which would be a major problem for the, for the Roman Empire in the near future. And lastly, you know, we talked about whack-a-mole, uh, our heresies. You know, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You whack one down and another one pops up over here. You know, somebody brought up Jehovah's Witnesses, and I was like, yeah, that's Arianism. So again, we whacked the mole of Arianism, but it popped up over here as Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, there was uh, a new heresy in the church. And I just wanted to uh, wax poetic a little bit here. And that was, I was thinking today of how lately it seems like there are so many downfalls in Christianity. And it reminds me uh, so often of, uh, I, I think sometimes we get wrong where our battleground is and where we struggle. Um, but uh, we, because we fight against our fallen nature, you know, we fight against our fallen will. And it can feel like an unequal struggle. Yet it's important to realize that uh, there's hope and there's help. And what we're going to do is we're going to see how Maximus today attempted to guide the church with issues of the will and with issues of nature and help us to better understand the fullness of our salvation. And that's really where we're going to see our hero today uh, come to the rescue, I think. Uh, yeah, and I, good timing, Chris. Um, so, uh, I would like to personalize history. I'm going to say that again. I can't overemphasize that because if we don't, I feel like we get the dangers. We get overloaded with information, this date, that date, this controversy, that controversy, and it really, things start to get lost. Um, and we forget that we're dealing with people, uh, with actual people with, with, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, look, I could I could easily uh, go all academic here and talks about talk about how Maximus the Confessor debated the proponents of monophysitism and monothelitism in 635 AD, and I could just watch all your eyes just start to glaze over. You know what does all that mean? You know because it doesn't mean anything to you. But if we can emphasize the person and give them a personality and even a face. Um, and I feel like a face that we can associate with that person, it can be really magic and it can stick with us. So, for instance, if I say that Maximus was his days equivalent to the Energizer Bunny, he took a licking but kept on ticking. You know, you could have, oh, 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 he gave you a sneak preview there. I wasn't ready for that. That's okay. Right. <laughs> he could, in the words of early church fathers, make coffee nervous. He was a man of boundless energy. You can all picture someone. Now you really can. A <laughs> uh, uh, man of boundless energy, you can picture somebody. And if I said he was a man who would appreciate a dramatic presentation or two, it kind of narrows it down maybe to a face you could picture even more. And if I was to say he loved the right worship of God and believed that that worship had been handed down by evidences that could be clearly seen, you might have even a better idea. And for me, Chris, go ahead and show that slide. My idea was our own favorite uh, Peter Cologne here. Talk about a guy who's a gentleman and a scholar and loves drama. I don't know if you've seen any of his cinematic works, but he's really heavy into the cinema. He's really heavy into reenactments. And this guy... He has had to deal with so much and illness in his life, and yet he just keeps on going. So 
congratulations, Peter, if you're out there, you're starring as our Maximus the Confessor. And this could be a label that could stick with you for a while because when I gave this as a devotional for Friends of Israel, we chose our John Wilcox as a stand-in. And every once in a while, he still gets called Maximus. <laughs> so, Peter, congratulations. You made the, you've made the big reel. You're the big star for today. So, Chris, let's go to that next slide. Let's talk a little bit about our Maximus. First of all, what a great name is that? You know, it's just awesome. Timothy just sounds kind of boring. You know, we talk about Maximus. That's just manly and great. And it's like the gladiator. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, our friend Maximus was born in the late 6th century of Rome. Um, he uh, was born during a time when the empire was going through some cultural changes. Christianity had been uh, authorized as a religion now for almost 200 years. He was highly educated. He had extremely influential parents who were able to get him into the best schools. And it appeared that he was on the fast track to being in the aristocratic elite when he all of a sudden became burdened for the ministry. And he became especially uh, interested in preaching and in the right worship of God. And he even made career sacrifices. He sacrificed a promising career in the aristocracy. He sacrificed riches, um, and which was a good thing because he became active in ministry, just as what I like to call rebranded history was invading the church again. Again, it's that it's that whack-a-mole. One you get one down, and another one just pops up. That's good. That's that's our word for the day, whack-a-mole. Uh, so he became active in ministry just as a rebranded heresy was invading the church. So Christopher, let's go to that next slide. So let's talk about the heresies because a lot of these heresies have some things in common, especially in these early days. One is they really seek to appeal to the intellect. And it's not that the intellect is bad, but they appeal to it in a way that kind of eliminates mystery. And they want to be able to explain everything. And you know what? There's just some things that are going to be really, really hard to explain and that we need to accept that there's going to be mystery. Now, these early heresies basically were all trying to do one thing. They were trying to fully understand, and I really should say articulate, the incarnation. These two specific heresies were called monothelitism and monophysitism. Monophysitism taught that Christ had one will, the divine will. Monophysitism taught that Christ had one nature, the divine nature. So in a way, these heresies were kind of ignoring the humanity of Christ. And Unfortunately, as a lot of these heresies have, we, while we don't have one central villain this time, there were lots of guys who were teaching this because they were able to make sense of it. And a lot of people were accepting it because, again, they were able to make sense of it. In fact, it spread so quickly that soon, as I say there, it reached all the way to the top. Uh, even the emperor, who I... Uh, even the emperor ex accepted it. 
And again, it was the, the, the point, the heresy was maintaining two points that Christ had one nature and one will, the divine nature and divine and the divine will. Well, it's safe to say these heretics would in fact meet their match in the energetic uh, Maximus the Confessor. Uh, but you have to understand these teachings had really made their way everywhere. I mean, if the emperor was buying into it, you know that these teachings had caught on fire. So if we could go to the next slide, please. Oh, so fortunately, Maximus, as they say, Maximus Peter Cologne fights back. <laughs> he proved to be a very dramatic preacher. He was great at delivering a stellar sermon. He used his flair and education. Those came into, into great use from his parents uh, who had spent all that money on him. And he was able to counter these points and he was able to use the scripture that was available. And he was able to even write several compelling works during his day. And his main point, and when, indeed one of the reasons why he has the name Confessor, was that he confessed that Christ was like us in all ways, except without sin. So he's quoting from Holy Scripture there. And that was his main point that he was trying to get across here in the early days, that Christ was like us in all ways, yet without sin. And, and, and what he wanted to do there was teach uh, that, uh, that the, the heresy was, was wrong. And, let, and let's dig a little bit deeper. Chris, can we go to the next slide, please? Okay. I went too quickly. Chris, you, you did go to the right side. But uh, these heretics, well, you know, let me just go for where I'm at because it works. The heretics were unable to out-argue Maximus, okay? They didn't have the intellect to do it, and they certainly appeared to not even have scripture to do it because they were coming up against that very solid declaration by Maximus. There. They were unable to out-argue him. So what did they do? Well, unfortunately... Uh, for Peter Cologne, this is when we need our FX department to, to come in, our special effects for the movie, because in anger, they mutilated his mouth uh, so that he couldn't talk, and sadly, they cut off his right hand, and sadly, they exiled him. And after that, to kind of sort of finish the deal, they basically started persecuting the faithful, those who had listened to Maximus, those who would turn back to what the true faith was. Um, so that it was a sad time for our brothers and sisters in Christ who were just trying to believe what was right. It was tough because you had a very popular heresy, two very popular heresies that were out there. Uh, let's go to our next slide. Please. So even though our heretics strike back, we have, as I love to call him, Maximus the Energizer Bunny. And this is where I see that spirit of Peter Cologne coming through. Because you know what? In spite of these crippling ailments that had been inflicted on him, just like our Peter, he lost no vigor. He kept on going. He would like he kept the lick, uh, you know, he, he took a licking and he kept on ticking. You remember the Energizer Bunny? We're all dating ourselves here. The you know, would keep going with the with the drums. Well, that's how I'm picturing Maximus. He just keeps going. In fact, as you see there in the heading, he learned to write with his remaining hand. So he, and very well too. So well, he was able to 
write so many letters, spread them out to the churches, and get he got his teaching circulating back into the empire again. And he had faithful followers who were carrying his, his teaching to all parts of the empire, getting the right words back into churches. So let's take a look at the next slide. Let's look at the confessions of Maximus because he had evolved his, his theology. He had expanded it now as he was beginning to articulate it and really to try and fight these heresies. So one of the things he did was, again, he appealed to Scripture himself, and he showed the struggle of Jesus and his human will. We all remember that part in the Scripture where Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, and he, Jesus had a struggle. He, that was his human will struggling there. Uh, his divine will obviously didn't have that same struggle, but his human will did. Okay? And, again, hearkening back to that Scripture that says he wasn't always like us yet without sin. And finally, he established the maxim. And this is, I really want to, I really want us to look at here. He established the maxim of that, and this is kind of fancy talk here, but bear with me, that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. That which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Okay, what does that mean? Well, basically, what Maximus meant was, if Jesus didn't take it on, it wasn't redeemable. Now, you know, when we look at all the struggles that we have, uh, we need a comprehensive salvation. And that's what Maximus wanted to show us here, that salvation was comprehensive. What do I mean by that? Well, our salvation is full seat. And I think one of the reasons why this uh, is really fitting for us today is one of the things I've noticed as evangelicals, and I think this is a good thing, uh, you tend to focus on the declaration of righteousness. We focus on the courtroom setting of salvation, uh, and it's a very forensic view of salvation, and we kind of forget that our salvation is a multifaceted salvation. Because do I need to be declared righteous? Absolutely. But there are other things I have that need saving too. You know, Paul said that we are being saved mind, soul, and spirit. Does my body need salvation? Yes, absolutely. Does my mind? Yes, absolutely. How about my will? Does my will need saving? Yeah, yeah, my will definitely needs saving. Does my human nature need saving? Yeah, it actually does. Yes, my will and my nature both need to be redeemed. As Jesus became fully human, it was so important for us to realize the implications of that and that our salvation wasn't merely just juridical, it was comprehensive. We could be completely, completely saved. And that was the main point that started swaying people back to a true view of salvation and the true comprehensiveness of what our salvation should be. Chris, can we go to that next slide? Let's look then at his legacy. Now, unfortunately, Maximus did die in exile. Uh, he never made it back into the empire, uh, but his teaching spread rapidly. 
uh, it got everywhere and it eventually even made its way back into the imperial court. And shortly after he died, the next emperor, uh, which was Heraclius, Heraclius, sorry, uh, exonerated him and exonerated his memory. And in the next ecumenical council, uh, it was made known that he was, you know, that he officially was exonerated, that uh, his memory was to be celebrated and that it was to be commemorated of how much he had gone through to fight for the church, to fight for truth, and to, to fight for that comprehensive view of salvation. Another part of his legacy is, in a way, it officially, I have quote marks there, ended the controversies over the incarnation of the church. Now, we know the controversies over the incarnation still abide today, and unfortunately, many have crept their ways back into the church. But in those days, even though some more heresies popped up here and there, uh, none of them really questioned Jesus Christ being fully God and fully human. That seemed to be solved. And finally, again, as I mentioned, he solidified the idea of salvation being comprehensive. And again, I, I think that that, again, is important today, again, for us, and, and I'll just repeat myself because I think it bears repeating, for us to remember that, yes, praise God, my salvation is juridical, right? Praise God, I have been declared righteousness. But also praise God that I am actually being saved. My body, my mind, my soul, all of these things are part of my salvation. And it's thanks to people like Maximus that I can realize that and realize that this is the idea that is being taught in scripture. And this is the idea that should be being taught in our churches of, of our salvation being comprehensive. So that is the role that Maximus, the confessor, had to play in the early church history. And I just thank you all so much for, for hanging with me on that. It was a lot of information. It was a little bit shorter than I intended. I, I talked kind of fast, so I'm definitely open to questions. Um, but I just hope that you all were blessed by this and blessed by the idea. And if I could just leave you with the one thing, it's remembering the idea of our comprehensive salvation and tying that to the the maxim of Maximus, which was that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.